Hi everyone, welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto seven years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the June 3rd, 2022 episode of Unchained. Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained Daily Newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hey, builders, looking for one of the best scaling solutions in crypto? That's easy. Avalanche's breakthrough subnet design lets you minimize transaction costs and maximize your speed, consistency, and user experience. To experience Web3 like never before, head to avox.network to learn more. With the Crypto.com app, you can buy, earn, and spend crypto in one place. Download and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Today's guest is Jason Gottlieb, partner at Morrison Cohen and chair of its regulatory enforcement and white collar practice. Welcome, Jason. Hi, Laura. It's great to be on with you. Quick note for all listeners, I do not have my nice mic with me here in Europe. And also, I am stuck here in Europe because I have COVID. So I will try to mute myself, but I may cough during the episode. Listeners may recall that last fall, the then head of product at OpenSea, Nathaniel Chastain, was alleged to have bought numerous NFTs that he later featured on the OpenSea homepage, then turning a quick profit. At the time, he was asked to and resigned immediately. This Wednesday, the Department of Justice arrested Chastain. Jason, can you explain what the charges were? Sure, absolutely. So as, as you noted, uh, Chastain was arrested and he was charged uh, in an indictment with two counts. Now, there is no such thing as a federal charge for uh, insider trading generally. So the charges against him are wire fraud and money laundering. The core allegations are that by misappropriating confidential information from his employer, from OpenSea, and using that confidential information in order to make a profit, he was uh, committing a fraudulent scheme. And because he was doing so over the internet, that satisfies the wire part of the wire fraud. The money laundering charge is a little bit strange. We could talk about that more if you'd like. The money laundering charge charges that he was uh, using uh, proceeds in a way to uh, conceal the profits of a crime or in some way in furtherance of the crime. But it's a a little bit of a more awkward fit than the wire fraud charge. So as you mentioned, the exact charges are not insider trading. But last fall, when the crypto community discovered that this is what Chastain was doing, that term insider trading was used frequently. And it's kind of, you know, I guess the behavior that people would associate with that term. But why is it that there are questions about applying it here? Well, it's funny, right? Because if you think about insider trading, it seems to fit what's going on here. He is an insider. He was trading on that inside information. So it seems like that's that should fit. 
But insider trading, as I mentioned, is not its own cause of action, either under the civil rules or the, the criminal law. The most common kind of insider trading we see is in the securities world, where somebody gets a, a confidential hot tip, either because they work at a company or because they overhear it or get it from someone, they obtain it in, a, uh, in confidentiality, and then they go and trade in the stock on that hot tip. So that's what we think of as sort of classical insider trading. But that's covered under Section 10B, and particularly 10B-5 thereunder, of the, the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. And the theory there is you are committing fraud. It is some sort of fraud on someone, generally the person who doesn't have that information that you're trading against, although nobody has to plead who that person is or what damages they've suffered. All the SEC would have to show in an SEC case is that you got information that you were supposed to have kept confidential and you didn't. Instead, you traded on that information. So when we think about insider trading, that's sort of the classic insider trading. We think about it in securities. The CFTC also has authority to go after insider trading in the civil context under a couple of sections from the Dodd-Frank Act of 180.1 and 180.2, which are generally coextensive with 10b-5 and would allow the CFTC to go after insider trading in commodities. In this case, a criminal case brought by the Department of Justice, not the SEC, not the CFTC, it is a criminal case, and it has the same sort of flavors. You got confidential information from your employer, you had a duty to keep it confidential, and instead you used it to profit for your own uh, gain. So it sounds a lot like those other cases, but because this is brought by the Department of Justice as a wire fraud case, the DOJ doesn't have to say whether the NFTs in question were securities or commodities or anything else. They just have to show that there was a scheme to defraud over which the defendant used the internet. And I should say that all, all of the allegations in the DOJ's, DOJ's indictment, they're just allegations, right? We're going to take them as they are written for the purposes of this call today. But you know, he is innocent until proven guilty, and that will uh, come out later. So as you mentioned, typically when people hear that term insider trading, it, it does um, typically apply to something like a security. And in this case, we have no statement by the prosecutor about what the status of these NFTs were. So what was interesting to me is when you read the complaint by, it was the Southern District of New York, this case or uh classifying his behavior as insider trading stems from the employer agreement. So can you talk about, you know, why that is and um, how applicable that, that really is here? Sure. And it's actually very important because that duty of confidentiality in insider trading cases is core to those cases. For example, in a typical stock tip case, right? Let's say you're the CFO of a company and you know that your company's stock is about to go down because you'll release disappointing results. You can't go and sell all your stock in advance of that news because you have a duty to your company to keep that information confidential. Now, what happens if you're the CFO and you're walking on the street and you see your friend and you tell your friend, hey, don't tell anyone, this is super secret and confidential and definitely don't trade on it, but our stock's gonna go down tomorrow. If your friend goes and trades on it, your friend's in trouble and the CFO is also in trouble. But what happens if the CFO is walking on the street 
talking on a, on a cell phone and saying, yeah, you know, our company's stock is going to take a nosedive tomorrow. If you are happening to be behind the person and you hear the CFO talking about it, there's no duty of confidentiality that attaches. Weirdly enough, there's no law against you going out and trading on that information. The insider trading law, as it's constructed, does not reach that behavior. Now, maybe it should, maybe it shouldn't, and maybe we have we should have an insider trading statute that, that reaches that kind of behavior. But because there is no duty of confidentiality that attaches, courts have pretty consistently held that that person is not going to be in trouble if they didn't receive it in, in confidence and if they didn't know that it was in confidence. There are some other nuances to the law, but that's, that's the, the, the essential part of it. And, you know, we've, we've seen this before. Uh, there was a Second Circuit case that was decided on bank back in 1991, U.S. v. Chestman, where a uh, person was convicted of wire fraud as well as uh, violating 10b-5 of the 1934 Act by misappropriating information. The Second Circuit held that there was no duty for the person who traded to keep that information confidential. It vacated the 10b-5 charges and it also vacated the wire fraud charges, holding that they were effectively the same theory as the 10b-5. Yeah, and I think that Mark Cuban um, famously was, I, I guess the word is exonerated, um, in a case where he had been told confidential information and traded on it, but did not agree to keep it confidential. And so... You know, eventually, you know, I think he spent a lot uh, on court fees, but eventually he was vindicated. So I actually do want to go back also to the money laundering charge, which you said the government had kind of um, a, a strange fit for its case there. So can you describe how it is that they're, or why it is that they made this charge? Yeah, you know, in some ways, a money laundering charge, and this is specifically under 18 U.S.C. 1956, is, is an add-on charge. It sort of says, if you knew that the property involved in a financial transaction represents the proceeds of some form of unlawful activity, then you can be guilty of laundering that money. And this is a, a sort of time-honored tradition in our, in our criminal justice system of following the money, right? We all sort of famously, we've, we had a prohibition gangsters who were busted on tax evasion, Al Capone, rather than the, the crimes that he had allegedly been, been committing. We follow the money, and if you can find that you were using the proceeds of a crime and trying to, to hide that or use that or using it to conceal what you had done, that can be money laundering. It fits very strangely here. According to the, the DOJ's criminal resource manual, to be criminally culpable under this part of the money laundering statutes, 1956A1, a defendant has to conduct or try to conduct a financial transaction knowing that the property involved in the financial transaction represents the proceeds of some unlawful activity. So, so hold on, let's compare that to what's alleged in the indictment. The indictment alleges that Mr. Chastain concealed the purchases by starting fresh accounts with no wallet history, by separating it from his name so it was allegedly or purportedly going to be anonymous, 
So the government is saying, well, hang on, maybe this is money laundering, right? You're trying to hide the tracks of what you're doing. But interestingly, that's all hiding the tracks on the government's theory of committing the crime. This doesn't have to do with what happened afterwards. Now, as I read the indictment, there's nothing after that saying he took the proceeds that he earned from the alleged insider trading and tried to hide them in some way, right? Put them through a, a mixer or tornado cash or into some foreign exchange and then took it out later. There's no allegations of what he did with the money afterwards. What you did with the money afterwards is a more classic money laundering charge, but obscuring the trail of the money as you're going into the crime, it's a little bit of an awkward fit on these facts. And I, I do wonder about uh, how the, the DOJ is going to prove up those elements. Now, of course, there may be other things that we don't know right now. All we have is a, a very brief indictment. But on the language of the indictment, it's, it's an uncomfortable fit for that statute. In a moment, we'll dive further into some of these questions. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn, and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. In just a year and a half since launching on Mainnet, Avalanche has built a vibrant community of builders, leaders, and innovators, expanding what's possible in Web3. And the real superpower of Avalanche is in its groundbreaking scaling design, subnets. Subnets are the future of Web3 scaling, empowering anyone to build custom, app-specific blockchains optimized to fit the needs of any builder and user. Avalanche subnets are already seeing rapid adoption across DeFi and gaming applications, as builders have a clear path to scaling their project for user demand today, while future-proofing their infrastructure to support mainstream adoption. Experience Web3 like never before. Scale with subnets. Head to avox.network to learn more. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Back to my conversation with Jason. When you talk about how the money laundering charge is sort of a strange fit, one other question I did see raised on Twitter was that Chastain had been moving money between self-hosted wallets. And some people wondered, does that mean that that behavior is classified as money laundering? Or is it just in this case because of the intent of what he was doing? What's your take on that question? Well, I think it's an excellent uh, question. And I guess shout out to crypto Twitter for raising the good ones. Um, moving something between unhosted wallets or self-hosted wallets itself seems hard to say is money laundering. I mean, this is the same thing as using Tornado Cash. If I took all of my crypto right now, put it into Tornado Cash and, and brought it back, not doing 
anything else remotely illegal, that in and of itself is not illegal. If you committed a crime and then tried to obscure the trail of that money by putting it through tornado cash or other means, that could arguably, arguably be money laundering. So again, we come up to the question that we talked about before. If he had the proceeds of the crime and he was moving them from wallet to wallet to wallet in some attempt to hide his trail, one could make an argument that that would be money laundering. Now, I don't think it's a very strong argument, right? This isn't legal advice, but if you're going to commit crimes, it's usually not a good idea to do it you know, on public blockchains that leave an immutable permanent trace of your activity. That, that's not legal advice. The legal advice is like, don't commit crime. But if you're going to do it, leaving a trace like that doesn't strike me as, as very effective money laundering. Now, of course, ineffective criminals are punished all the time, right? If you try something and you do it in a stupid way and you are caught, you can't say, what I did was so stupid, you couldn't possibly have believed I was trying to rob the store. Like, no, that, that doesn't work. But there really is a good question about whether moving money from one self-hosted wallet to another could really count as trying to hide a trail of money when the trail of money is all going to be right there for everyone to see. And of course, that's even before we get to the questions that we raised earlier about doing that in advance of a kind of purchase that would be allegedly illegal. So overall, this case just raises a lot of interesting questions, but what would you say could be the ramifications for the wider NFT space, if any? I, I think that the prosecutors in the Southern District charged this one, at least on the wire fraud, in a very smart way for a couple of reasons. One, they're not taking any position on whether an NFT or an NFT drop or drop many NFTs is or isn't a securities offering. They're not taking any position on whether an NFT itself is a commodity, which is a position that the CFTC would almost certainly take. So they're avoiding the questions of what is this thing exactly? And they're focusing more on the nature of a fraudulent scheme, right? It doesn't matter in this case, whether it was an NFT or whether Mr. Chastain was an employee at Foot Locker right? And in the back of the store for two weeks, they had a pair of Air Jordans that weren't selling. So he found out that they were going to put them in the front window the next day. So he purchased, purchases them himself without telling anyone. They go into the front window and all of a sudden, because of their featured placement, they're much more expensive. And he plays middleman and gets to take that, that uh, skim that profit off the top for himself. That's effectively exactly what's happened here. And in that case, it doesn't matter whether the Air Jordans are securities or commodities or anything else. They're, they're, they're just sneakers. Uh, so it, it doesn't matter in that case what this is. So to answer your question, I'm not actually sure this case has a lot of deeper ramifications for the NFT space if it plays out exactly as, as alleged. A lot of us in the space, in the crypto space, have been warning literally for years that insider trading charges are coming at some point, but you don't really have to get to these notions of whether they're securities, whether they're commodities. If it's a criminal action, it can be brought under wire fraud. And of course, there's a higher burden. Uh, the burden of proof is higher, right? It's innocence until proven guilty. You have to prove that he's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. 
whereas the SEC and CFTC uh, have just preponderance of the evidence standards, so they've got an easier time. That said, the, the DOJ doesn't have to show what the NFT or any other coin or token or anything is. The SEC and CFTC would have to show those. However, the CFTC should probably have a fairly easy job of showing that any token is a commodity. We've already seen two federal judges in Brooklyn and then in Massachusetts hold that the CFTC has broad anti-fraud and anti-manipulation authority over cryptocurrency. Whether the courts would extend that to NFTs as well is an open question. It's an interesting one we can get into. But on the rationale of those cases, it seems pretty a, a very a very short step to conclude that a court could conclude or would conclude that the NFTs are commodities that are protected under the CFTC's anti-fraud rules. One other instance I think that uh, this is quite reminiscent of are how when coins are about to be listed at Coinbase or when they're about when there's about to be an announcement that they'll be listed, the price of those coins has seemed to be moving up in the days ahead of of those kinds of things happening. So how do you think this case might affect policies at places like Coinbase? Any platform that is listing tokens should have for its own employees an insider trading policy, a policy that spells out for employees what they can be doing and what they can't be doing, what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing. And among those rules really has to be the the sort of core rule here if you have information about a particular coin or token, you should not be trading on that. These rules are very familiar in the corporate world. Most uh, companies, law firms have insider trading policies where if the law firm, for example, is representing a publicly traded company, people at the law firm who may be in possession of confidential information about the client, they shouldn't be trading that. Crypto companies need to adopt these kinds of policies and enforce these kinds of policies. Otherwise, I've been saying for years, there are going to be issues where, as you said, the the price starts creeping up before something is publicly offered or publicly listed. And inevitably, we're going to find that there were people on the inside. Maybe it was some insiders who were buying up the coin because they knew the price was about to pop. So folks in the crypto world, my friends, if you're working for a project and you know that your coin is about to pop because of an imminent listing or something else, please don't trade. Talk to a lawyer. Uh, Don't get yourself in trouble here. Going back to the Chastain case from a legal process standpoint, what happens from here on out? So uh, Mr. Chastain has been indicted. I believe that he has been released on bail. And, you know, in the coming days, we're going to see a, a process where the prosecutors have to turn over all the evidence they have to uh, Mr. Chastain and his counsel. There, there may be some procedural wranglings uh, about, uh, for example, whether the evidence is, is admissible, whether, whether any of the evidence should be suppressed. But ultimately, unless there is a plea agreement, uh, there will be a trial and the government will put on its case. Uh, Mr. Chastain has a right to remain silent so he can testify or not as as he and his lawyers decide. And uh, it's possible that we'll have a jury decide. If there's no plea agreement, then it, it will go to a jury. But even then, that's not necessarily the, the end uh, of the analysis. 
because some of the key cases that have been decided in wire fraud and insider trading have gone up through the trial courts and to to the appellate courts. So we talked earlier about uh, about the the Chestman case uh, on which there was a conviction at the district court, an appeal to the Second Circuit, and then a reappeal. It was heard on bond. The entire Second Circuit heard the appeal and vacated the convictions. Going even further, there was a case uh, back in in the 1980s where a report called Carpenter, where a reporter at the Wall Street Journal was writing an article where he would talk about you know what 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 stocks are are hot or what are what things are being considered, and he saw pretty reliably that when they published the information about these stocks, the prices would go up. So he was tipping that he was going to be writing about those stocks. And that case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court unanimously held that that could be wire fraud and in insider trading. And so one other thing that I wanted to ask about was I noticed a lot of people commenting on how the charges each potentially could be you know, for sentences of 20 years each, so 40 years total. And I saw some people wondering why it is that the potential sentence for each charge is so long and also what the odds were that you thought he might have to serve some jail time if if convicted. Right. Well, there's there's a long time between here and, and any jail time. I mean, obviously, first he would have to be uh, convicted. But the maximum sentences are just that. They're statutory maximums. They're is a complicated federal sentencing guideline system that deals with the severity of of the crimes, how much money he made in in these instances. And there are statutory ranges that can be calculated from the guidelines that uh, after conviction, if he were convicted here or if he uh, pled guilty, the prosecutors would argue for where what they thought was appropriate within the guidelines. They might even argue for it an upward or a downward departure. Usually the prosecutors argue for upward if they're going to argue at all. The defense can argue within those guidelines as well and argue for the lower end of the range or a downward departure. And then ultimately the judge uh, would uh, hand down whatever the sentence is. And we can see that those vary wildly. So for example, in the BitMEX case uh, with Arthur Hayes and his compatriots, uh, they eventually pled guilty. And the, the crimes that uh, Mr. Hayes was alleged to have committed were, in, in addition to other things, uh, money laundering or, or eva- you know, a, a evasion of the, the Bank Secrecy Act, a violation of the Bank Secrecy Act. The statutory maximums for those are also very high. But, you know, at the end of the day, he got a, a few months of house arrest and no time actually behind bars. This is something that we see very often. These statutory maximums can be very, very high. And the unfortunate effect, in my view, is it gets defendants to plea because nobody wants to go to trial and potentially face that, even though it's very rare for someone to actually be sentenced to the full amount of those sentences. All right. Well, we will have to see what happens. I'm sure a lot of people will be watching this case. Thank you so much for coming on Unchained. Great to be with you. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Stick around for this week in crypto after this short break. Hey, builders, looking for one of the best scaling solutions in crypto? That's easy. Avalanche's breakthrough subnet design lets you minimize transaction costs and maximize your speed, consistency, and user experience. To experience Web3 like never before, 
Head to avox.network to learn more. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. Ethereum's big dress rehearsal for the merge is underway. Ethereum's oldest proof-of-work testnet has begun its transition to proof-of-stake, according to Ethereum core developer Tim Bako, who described the event as the network's first dress rehearsal for miners. The transition, better known as the merge, is scheduled to occur on the Robston testnet around June 8th, about 10 days after a new Robston beacon chain was launched on May 30th. Robston must activate its Bellatrix upgrade to make the proof-of-work chain merge compatible, and trigger a terminal total difficulty or TTD hash rate number on the proof of work chain. Once both of those occur, which is estimated to be around June 8th, the merge should occur in two epochs or approximately 13 minutes. This is the final testing stage for Ethereum. Previously, testing had been implemented on clients and shadow forks. Robston is the first public testnet to undergo the merge. After Robston, Gorley and Spolia will also be put to the test. The Robston news comes just a week after Ethereum's beacon chain experienced a seven-block reorg, meaning two beacon chains were briefly running in parallel as nodes attempted to find consensus due to some validators running updated software which process blocks faster than others. Eventually, after seven blocks, the validators agreed on the correct chain, resolving the discrepancy. The core issue of the reorg was validators not running upgraded software. It will be mandatory to upgrade before the merge occurs. Speaking of Ethereum and the merge, a recent report from Ethereum researcher Danny Ryan noted that liquid staking services like Lido, where users can earn proof-of-stake yield without locking their tokens into the beacon chain, pose significant risks to Ethereum. Notably, Ryan suggests that liquid staking protocols should self-limit the amount of ETH they stake to avoid centralization and overall system risk. For example, Ryan wrote, if pooled stake under one liquid staking derivatives protocol exceeds 50%, this pooled stake gains the ability to censor blocks. In a regulatory censorship attack, we now have a distinct entity, the governance token holders, that a regulator can make requests of censorship. Depending on the token distribution, this is likely a much simpler regulatory target than the Ethereum network as a whole. Rollup token OP stumbles upon rollout. Optimism, the second largest Ethereum rollup by total value locked, officially launched its governance token OP on Tuesday via an airdrop that saw 50% of OP's supply released. However, The token drop was not without its issues, as OP started trading hours before the official Optimism website was ready to go, due to traders claiming OP tokens directly from Optimism's smart contracts. The early OP trading took the Optimism team by surprise. We have not officially announced yet, but we're already experiencing an all-time high demand, the team tweeted on Tuesday afternoon. We're working to heavily provision more capacity before our official announcement. In the meantime, the public RPC may respond slowly. During the time OP became available via smart contract and the Optimism front end was ready, the token dropped from a high of $4.40 to around $1. 
giving the highly skilled Web3 users interacting directly with the smart contracts a huge advantage in trading the airdrop. At 11 a.m., we deployed and loaded our smart contract with the OP tokens for drop number one, Optimism explained. Our biggest mistake here was failing to make this contract possible. Claims were open and we had no way to stop them. OP is trading at $1.29, giving Optimism a fully diluted market capitalization of $5.4 billion. This comes in a bit lower than Masari's projection of a launch market cap of roughly $9 billion. The OP token will be used in the Optimism Collective Token House, one of two entities that will help govern the Optimism Treasury and network over the coming years. The CFTC goes after Gemini. The U.S. Commodities Futures Trading Commission is reportedly suing the crypto exchange Gemini. On Thursday, Bloomberg revealed the regulator is accusing Gemini of having misled the CFTC in answers to questions about the trading of a potential futures contract pegged to the price of VTC on Gemini's platform in 2017, and is alleging that the Winklevoss-led exchange has violated the Commodity Exchange Act along with various regulations. Solana goes down again. According to data from Solana's status page, the mainnet blockchain went down for four hours and 10 minutes on Wednesday. The network was restarted late Wednesday afternoon after coordination by Solana validators on a Google Doc. Based on a report from Solana, the network was taken down due to a durable non-spug that led to non-determinism in the blockchain where nodes generated different results for the same block. Notably, this affected withdrawals from major exchanges, as explained by StakeWiz.com, a Solana validator on Twitter. A durable nonce is a way in which a transaction can be signed offline ahead of time without requiring a recent block hash, which expires after two minutes. Usage has recently increased, particularly by exchanges, possibly due to their cold storage setups. Network outages are becoming a trend for Solana. The network also faced two hours and five hours of downtime, respectively, on April 30th and May 1st of this year. Solana also experienced downtimes of 16, 8, and 10 hours in January 2022, and 17 hours in September 2021. Furthermore, Solana recently lost track of real-world time and is currently 30 minutes behind schedule due to slot times executing at a slower-than-expected pace. While this does not have any real effect on the network, it does hold economic consequences for the sole stakers as slower slot times mean less staking rewards. Terra suffered a $90 million hack months ago and nobody noticed until now. A $90 million exploit from October on Mirror Protocol, a synthetic asset platform on Terra, was discovered this week by a blockchain analyst who goes by the moniker Fatman. BlockSec, a blockchain security firm, also confirmed the exploit. Due to buggy code, a hacker was able to drain $90 million from Mirror due to a flaw that allowed an attacker to use a list of duplicate IDs to unlock more collateral than they had. The bug has since been rectified, though it is unclear whether Mirror developers were aware of the hack when fixing it. Mirror joins Ronin as the second time a significant hack went unnoticed for a substantial period despite the public on-chain nature of the exploits. In addition to the $90 million hack, Fatman also pointed out another mirror attack that allegedly happened this week, which saw over $2 million drained from the protocol due to a bug in the Luna Classic pricing oracle. As of press time, this has yet to be confirmed. <laughs> 
Tech experts criticize crypto. A group of 26 tech experts and academics published a letter to U.S. lawmakers that took aim at the crypto industry. The group included the principal engineer at Google Cloud, Kelsey Hightower, Harvard lecturer Bruce Schneier, along with noted crypto critics David Girard, Molly White, and Stephen Deal. The group urged pro-crypto lawmakers such as Senators Ron Wyden, Patrick Toomey, and Maxine Waters to take a skeptical approach towards crypto assets and to resist pressure from crypto lobbyists because blockchain technology will remain forever unsuitable as a foundation for large-scale economic activity. Five on-chain stats to summarize May. The first stat, three. Through the end of May, only three tokens in the top 100 by market cap, Bitfinex's LEO, Tron's TRX, and Paxos's Pax Gold, are up year-to-date. Notably, Terra Classic is down 100% year-to-date, but is still the 82nd largest asset by market capitalization. The second stat, 53,000. On May 31st, Optimism saw 53,000 unique addresses do something on its blockchain. Its previous all-time high, 13,300. The third stat, 228.51. Bitcoin's hash rate hit an all-time high on May 6th at 228.51 terahashes. Fourth stat, 51.75. Ethereum NFT sales volume more than halved in May compared to April according to data from CryptoSlam. Interestingly, Solana NFT volume only decreased by 18.43%. And finally, $105.52 billion. The difference between the DeFi market cap on May 1st and May 31st. Total value locked across the DeFi ecosystem fell from $247 billion to $142 billion in May, as data from DeFi Llama shows. Time for fun bids. If Kobe were in charge, nobody would get an airdrop. Optimism's airdrop, as explained above, was somewhat controversial this week due to a messy rollout. The airdrop became even more contentious this week when ZeroXJohn posted on Optimism's governance forum calling for all OP sellers to be cut off from future OP airdrops. Kobe, a pseudo-famous crypto expert, took umbrage with the idea in his troll-centric way. I was extremely pleased to see this proposal. Canceling the future airdrops of those who have sold their initial OP airdrop seems sensible, well-considered, and targets the heart of any crypto protocol. The price of its token, wrote Kobe in his parody governance proposal. He went on to propose exceedingly sarcastic ideas, like Canceling the OP airdrop for addresses that sold any tokens in the past six months. Physically beating up any OP sellers. And, my favorite, considering issuing debt tokens that are acceptable by local debt collection agencies as an added revenue stream for optimism. Seems like the optimism governance structure is off to a good start. This week in crypto adoption, Space, Burritos, and Kanye. Despite a down market, see Gemini laying off 10% of its staff due to a crypto winter, there was still a wide variety of big names announcing crypto adoption. Elon Musk announced last Friday that SpaceX merchandise will soon be purchasable with Doge. So if you've been dying to buy that $45 kids SpaceX spacesuit onesie, but haven't wanted to transact with Fiat, then your time is coming. 
Chipotle, the popular burrito-based restaurant chain, is now accepting BTC and ETH as payment through Flexa, a digital payments platform. And finally, Kanye West's Yeezus brand filed 17 trademark applications for blockchain-based assets, including collectibles, currencies, and tokens. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Jason and the Nate Chastain case, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, Mark Murdoch, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.